0: Welcome to A Musician's Life Podcast. This podcast features interviews with a diverse group of musicians in different fields of the music industry, and my intent is that the audience will gain something from each guest's story. This episode features my conversation with Aaron Thurston. Aaron is a professional drummer and small business owner based in Brooklyn. We discuss coming up in the jazz scene in Boston, the process of getting established in New York, and how he started his very hip wedding band agency, Lucy Music. I sat down with Aaron at Lucy Music Showcase and Rehearsal Studio in Gowanus, Brooklyn this past July. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. Click on the link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please feel free to email me at podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at musician's life pod i'm also on facebook and instagram here's my conversation with aaron thurston and welcome to the podcast man thanks for doing it my pleasure so let's start with some basic biographical information where'd you grow up
1: i grew up outside of boston mass. okay uh middleton mass
0: middleton mass okay were your parents musical at all
1: my mom played a little piano mm-hmm. mostly just when she dusted it okay and uh and my dad was just a music lover
0: okay and when did you start playing your first instrument?
1: Uh, I think I was nine okay. when I started the drums, yeah.
0: Okay, and how did that come up? Was that like through the middle uh, program at your school or?
1: Yeah, yeah, my, I, I actually, I was a pretty small kid. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play trumpet and my teacher, Mr. Winter, handed me a trumpet. I was like, here, try this. And I held mm-hmm. it up and he was like, nah man, that's too, that's too big, Yeah. I gave me some drumsticks. Yeah. And I still think about Mr. Winter when I carry you know, like cymbals and drums through the airport. Yeah, through the snow and the <laughs> wind and rain, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Cool, so then you played in like middle school band and did all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for what there was, yeah. Yeah,
0: was there like a middle school jazz band or a high school jazz band that you were involved in? Yeah,
1: junior, I guess junior high started doing, I went to Masked Yes. and yeah. there, was, there was a bunch of band opportunities. Okay. Yeah, I took advantage of every, every one of those.
0: And uh, so... Like, who was your first, like, great drum teacher?
1: Uh, Roger Brocklebank. Roger Brocklebank, yeah, yeah. Definitely.
0: Um, and when did you start? Was it, start with him in middle school or high school? Or
1: Yeah, I guess, well, um, it was junior high, seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I studied with him until...
0: Pretty much weekly? All or? The
1: way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much. I mean, I would get lazy sometimes and yeah. bail on a lesson here and there. Right. As kids do. But yeah, he was great. He answered all my questions.
0: Yeah. Was, did you, so when I think of Roger, I think of, like, he's a great drum set player, but he's also a great mallet player and timpani and other percussion. Did you do the other percussion as well? Yeah.
1: I mean, I didn't study, like, that heavily on that stuff, but um, m- m- uh, some timpani stuff for sure. Um, uh-huh. You know, because I, I, I auditioned for States and all that. I got, st- I got, got to go to States for classical stuff. Oh, cool. Stuff, but I wouldn't say I was a good mallet player, right. but he was, I mean, he would he would have... You know, if I was interested, he would have taken me
0: there. Sure. Uh, so, like, in your mi- middle school, like high school, like, what kind of music were you interested in? What, what were you listening to just on your own?
1: Well, Boston radio, I don't mm-hmm. think it's changed much, Andrew.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think mean, you can turn on the radio, it's pretty much the same classic rock that was sure. on when I was growing up. Um, so, yeah, a lot of rock, rock and roll that, I mean... When I got into Led Zeppelin, that was big time. But yeah. then I started, I, I got tired. I wanted something more, and I started getting into jazz. And You know, this is cassettes and CDs and reading liner yeah. notes and learning about, oh, so who's this John Coltrane guy? Right. Miles Davis. And then right. Going to look for the record covers. Maybe you're looking through, and you're like, oh, well, this record cover looks crazy. I'll try this one. And it's Bitches Brew. Right. Like, what is this? What is that? But I'll never forget when I first heard Giant Steps, and that was like, whoa. Yeah. And then, fortunately... Um, I got really into jazz. My I didn't really know what to do with that, um, but I, a kid transferred to my school when I was about to become a junior. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Richard Johnson. He went on to play with uh, Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, and mm-hmm. a bunch of other groups, and we. Um,
0: what he, did he play? He played piano. Sorry. He played piano, okay, yeah.
1: But we became fast friends. We started. It's like I think his first day. He showed up in a suit and a piano keys tie and a briefcase. Just throwing it, putting it right out there. He was ready. He was ready. Putting it right out there. He was ready. He was like, he was less, you know, it was like meeting somebody who was already, a, he, yeah. he walked around like he was already a jazz musician. Yeah. Awesome. And man, he hustled and he, we uh, we made a recording.
0: Yeah.
1: Had a trio. Got gigs. Right. It was
0: great. So would you play around like the North Shore? Of we would, yeah. He then? got us a
1: regular gig at a restaurant in, uh, I forget where. Anyways, we picked up a bass player from, from Lexington, Mass. Cool. Yeah. So I, I was fortunate. I, I think a lot of guys learn music and they figure out um, they find friends that can play music. Yeah. But I think it's rare to find friends who are really into playing yeah jazz music. And it checking is rare. out yeah. Blakey and <laughs> Yeah, that's really rare. That's excellent, man.
0: Um, so would you guys, so you had a trio, so would you get together and like rehearse? Yeah. And like yeah, we would like a little and,
1: yeah. Awesome. We would play at, at Richard's house and we would play at the school and um, whenever we could, we would have rehearsal. Yeah. Cool.
0: And you were was your high school you were you mentioned you did states for or all state for uh, like uh, mallet or timpani or classical class, yeah classical, classical percussion, percussion. percussion. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like how was your high school jazz band experience what was that like
1: um,
0: was it a good band did you guys rehearse frequently yeah or? we would
1: rehearse I, I guess every week I really I can't remember but um, you know I, I think a high school band is as good as. As people are, you know, it depends on how passionate everybody is. But we had a great sure. teacher. Our yeah, teacher was terrific. And Randy O'Keefe was great.
0: Okay, and um, so you mentioned you studied with Roger, and uh, earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that you had also tracked down Alan Dawson. Mm-hmm. And yeah, where does that fit into the timeline of your life? Was that like college, post college, or that was?
1: Uh, I took some time off in between. I went to Oberlin Conservatory uh-huh. for a year. I took some time off between Oberlin and Berkeley. Okay. During that time off, I looked at. All right. Out.
0: Cool. Let's. We'll come into that later then. Cool. Um, so, in your high school years, like, what was a concert that you saw that you can think of that like really inspired you that mm. like maybe set you in a direction?
1: Sure. Uh, well, there I went to uh, the University of New Hampshire summer youth music whatever mm-hmm. it's called uh, music camp, and I remember I saw Keith Copeland play drums for the first time, mm-hmm. and that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa yeah I seem to remember Clark Terry was there too um and a bunch of other really great I mean it was just everybody was really great right um that was pretty amazing
0: awesome um so moving into college do you did you know that you wanted to major in music in college like as you were finishing up high school
1: you know yeah I mean I I did I did I wasn't the greatest student. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of choices. Yeah. So uh, you know, when I started getting offers, scholarships to go to school, yeah. for music, it was like wow. And I, I sort of tested the waters. I went to the UNH summer thing. I also went to the Eastman summer school thing, and just got a sense of what college level courses were going to be like, right? In terms of learning theory, and I mean, I was like, I, I mean, to that you could go to school and learn. From people who are like having you transcribe records that you already listened to, that right. you already love. Right. It just seemed natural.
0: So. Right. Sure. Um, so, what were the schools that you narrowed down with it? Were your top choices for going for for studying music in college?
1: I think I um, I got into New England Conservatory, mm-hmm. um, Berkeley, Oberlin. I can't remember where else I uh, went. I, I looked at I think I looked at some schools in New York City, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but Oberlin seemed like a good choice because they, they had a college, too. And I, was mm-hmm. interested in, I wasn't, you know, that set on going to a really hardcore...
0: Music school. Yeah.
1: yeah. Like, I mean, even though Oberlin is, it's yeah. very intense. It's yeah. super intense. But there's a college that balances it out.
0: Is that where Jamie, her dad, teaches?
1: He does now. He yeah. But Jamie was teaching at Berkeley, and I studied with Jamie at Berkeley. At
0: Berkeley, yeah. yeah. Same here like, at that That's... Ohio, maybe Oberlin. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that's yeah. Um, So, so you decided on Oberlin. You went to Oberlin, and Mm -hmm. then you mentioned that you went for a year or so, and then took some time off. Mm -hmm. What, what was that process like? What was going on? Well, first of
1: all, when I visited Oberlin, yeah, it was springtime. It was sunny. Yeah, it was gorgeous. People were outside walking around. All these, I, I met some students who were like talking about the meaning of life and the how did the universe get created and. Religion, and sociology, and anthropology, and all yeah. this interesting stuff. And then there were some great musicians there that I met. And the Tri-C Jazz Fest was happening, mm-hmm. and they took me to the jazz fest. And I got to see Ray Brown. I got to see Roy Hargrove's band. Met Gregory Hutchinson. I was like, "Oh, awesome. this is where I want to be. This yeah. is like so different Amazing. than yeah. where I was grew up." Right. What they didn't tell me was how cold the winter is there.
0: Yeah. Man. and you're I mean, from Massachusetts. I mean, Boston's cold, <laughs> yeah, but
1: you know, Boston. Boston has some hills. Yeah, that break things up a little bit, but the the air off of those Great Lakes. <laughs> I think it was a record-setting winter too. Okay. Um, but also, I just really started to get the feeling um, that you know, school is great, but nothing is better than the experience of playing with people. And I really, I was, I started gig when I was in Cleveland. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'll just go back to Boston. and Just keep
0: doing that. Just gig. Right. I
1: wanted to be in a place that was um, a little more vibrant.
0: So who did you, who was your drum teacher at Oberlin?
1: At Oberlin, I studied with, um, well let's see, uh, Greg Bandy was there, there was a guy named Scott Cania. And the overall uh, teacher that I was studying with the most uh, was a saxophonist named Donald Walden. Okay. um, From Detroit. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And I had a bunch of ensembles with him. And
0: And was, you mentioned earlier one of these guys maybe like pushed you in the direction of like, maybe you should just go play or like, was that a thing? Or? Well, you
1: know, the, this program was started by an amazing um, guy named uh, Dr. Wendell Logan, who mm-hmm. was a composer, and um, he actually pretty much built the jazz program at Oberlin. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we were there, we, the jazz program was actually in a gym. It wasn't in the conservatory building we were in this rundown gym if it rained we had to run over to there to take our drums off the floor and put them on the tables because it would flood it was like really it was really we were second-class citizens up in there right paying the same as everybody else right um so but i tell that story to to illustrate that i really got to see how he fought tooth and nail to bring jazz into a legitimized uh, position in education and um I guess in the last ten years or so, they announced an entire jazz wing, this multi-million-dollar jazz wing that was yeah. dedicated to him, and he passed. He got to see it, but he passed away right. shortly after. And that's you know part of his legacy. Wow. Uh, anyways, part of yeah. his uh, this amazing class I took, he calls it Introduction to African American Music, and it was really, I think he, it was sort of tongue in cheek, because the idea is that you can never learn everything, mm-hmm. so it's always an introduction. Right. <laughs> it was so amazing, and his he really had an impact on me, and. Um, made me think that, you know, this music is a is g- great music is alive. It's not something that you can always learn in the classroom. Right. Um, so I left, and he I, he actually seemed a little hurt. I said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take some time off. Yeah. I'm back to Boston. Yeah. I figured I'll just start getting gigs there. Yeah. Cut to I don't know four months later. I'm buttering my. 10,000th bagel yeah. Cafe on Newbury Street <laughs> Yeah And I finally had enough And yeah. I was walking by Berkeley I mean I feel like He was wearing my apron I probably wasn't But in yeah. my mind I was And Popped in I asked him If I still had a scholarship And they said "Yes, yeah, school starts tomorrow It was like in a movie Yeah That's amazing <laughs> <laughs> So I did I just left like, Took off through the apron yeah. Of the trash can <laughs> And like walked into Berkeley Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it was like that um, So To all the students out there What I'm saying is like There's a lot of different journeys And you should right. Uh, there's a lot of different things that you can learn and I, I still felt and I still feel strongly that um, school is just one tool. Right. It's, it's just one thing. I mean, yeah. I didn't learn most of what I feel is the most valuable to me right. in school. Sure. Um,
0: uh, and let's let's talk about that for a second because you mentioned Al- when well, you talked about Alan Dawson earlier and was it... In that period between Oberlin and starting at Berkeley, where you studied with Alan? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. It was he teaching in Lexington at yeah, his house?
1: Yeah, So I was living in Boston. I would take train out to the end, Arlington, yeah. take two buses. And, sure. Yeah, walk over to his house.
0: Yeah, awesome. Uh, so when you studied with Alan, had you done some of his material with other teachers?
1: Yeah, well, Roger is a Roger Brocklebank, like my first teacher. Yeah. Direct descendant of Alan. I mean, he. Okay, he comes right he, from it. Yeah. yeah, he comes right from it. So I'd already seen the rudimental ritual yeah. and syncopation and stick control, and I've been doing a lot of the exercises that were that Alan From that,
0: do. yeah. So I'm curious, I think it's fa- kind of fascinating to talk to students of Alan's because it seems like Alan had like a core teaching curriculum that's obvious that everybody has done. And then it seems like I've, you know, I've talked to like Gulati or like terry lynn or some other like high level players that mm-hmm. study with him for longer periods of time and they all seem to like, have like this thing that he would very personalized thing that he would give to, to each person like once they got beyond the kind of like mm-hmm. core curriculum his core curriculum i'm curious to like if he started you like you know anybody like that can obviously benefit from sitting down at any level and doing the ritual or whatever and refining your technique, but um, did he like have you come back in and like start working on the ritual or like the classics, and capacious stuff, or was there some new stuff that you hadn't seen before?
1: Uh, yeah, the new stuff was stuff that Roger tried to get me to do, and uh-huh. then Alan was a little more, um, uh, he, he was, you know, he he would have me sing the melody or the chord tones, mm-hmm. and and solo over that or play time and sing melody and mm. solo um, scat sometimes even mm. um, I think he was really just trying to open me up as an all around musician yeah he would tell me about Tony Williams was, well I would ask him yeah. about Tony Williams because I was really deep into Tony Williams and keep in mind I'm 18 years Still old pretty this point young, yeah. and so I was having also a bit of an identity crisis in sure. general sure so I don't think I was the best student with that one. Right. I think he was really patient with me. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if I could go study with him now, I would yeah. just soak it all up like a sponge. Yeah. At the time, I was a little confused. Sure. But he was really patient with me, and he I think he was trying to open me up. And mm-hmm. uh, I've heard he does this with a lot of students. Yeah. So he was really getting me to think, oh, so the Tony Williams thing, he was saying, Tony had the ability to hear everything from above. Right. So, Which seems obvious. Like, right. a good musician... You're relaxed and you're hearing everything that's happening. Right. But um, I think he was really, especially pointing that out because I was really deep into what I was doing on the drums and trying to figure it out. Right. That's not necessarily the most musical place to be in if you're stuck in your own. It's like having a, you know, not being able to converse with anybody.
0: Sure. Yeah. Just
1: yapping on and on the way I am now. Right.
0: No. (laughs) I said, like, one final note on the Alan thing. Like, I, Alan passed away I believe the, the year I moved to Boston, maybe ninety eight and ninety nine, I think, and uh, so I never got to connect with him. But I recently, I studied with John Ramsey at the school, and I went recently took a lesson at John's house. And John actually bought Alan's house in Really? Washington. Yeah. And oh, so, I didn't know that. So I would, I was, Whoa. you know, I like got some Christmas bonuses from like students or whatever. And I was like. I'm just gonna like. I want to talk to John more at my age now, at 35. Like, I want to like ask him about like the Art Blakey press roll because he watched Art Blicky do it 10,000 times. And so he's right, right there. A mean press roll. Himself. And yeah, exactly. So I was like, let's. I just want one question. The whole lesson. That's all I want to know. Yeah, you know, all I want to talk about. And so I called him up. We did it over Christmas, and it was so great because I never been. To, I never got to go to Alan's house, but it's like so now I'm in Alan's house, and you go around the back way, uh-huh. and it's like the same room, like the same place where Alan taught. And it has like, John still like Alan's practice pad. Uh You sit at that pad and then there's a picture of Alan sitting at that pad in like 1968 or something and the same chair. It's yeah. like, it was so cool just yeah. to be in that Are room. Are
1: his drums down there too or John has his own drums?
0: John has his own drums down there. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I'm sure there's, who knows all that but I'm, I'm, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but John has his own stuff down there. So anyway, so you, so you got to go to Berkeley. Uh, so you walked into Berkeley and what, did you, what was were your major and how long were you there for?
1: Uh, well, I, I went straight through with no breaks because I was running late anyway because mm-hmm. I take it some time off. Right. Um, so I guess I was there for two and a half years and uh, studied... I think my, my major ultimately was, I forget what they call it. It was some like.
0: Professional music or it something was, like that. It's yeah. kind of yeah. like do whatever, what be here was. for a couple of years and That's what it was. Along. Because yeah.
1: I, I didn't know what I, I was taking entrepreneurship and introduction to film scoring and Japanese and like all these weird things. That I, had yeah. to, I basically just had to write an essay saying, here's how this all works together. It's because I'm going to be a musician. I need to know all these things and I'm, I'm going to go to Japan.
0: Yeah. For <laughs> so sure. That's a degree. Yeah. yeah cool awesome so um so after graduating from berkeley and moving into your professional career was there a period of transition where you went back to working some other jobs that were non-musical or were you sure. able to kind of like move into the yeah well world? even
1: when I, while I was at berkeley i was a i was a tour guide i would drive those tour trolleys
0: around boston oh no way
1: which was a little bit like acting a little bit there was a script yeah, so
0: you were like talking and driving and yeah
1: it's weird they give you these little like nazi style uniforms and then you have to wear a microphone and Kind of like they, they, it's modeled after the Disneyland sure. ambassador uh-huh. style of service, but man, I mean, I'd always been a pretty good driver, I think, but driving a trolley ten hours a day in Boston and is, talking and paying intense, attention, man, yeah, it's really fun. I really got to know that city. And right, I learned a lot about it. I can't remember any of it anymore. but That <laughs> was awesome. a really great summer job, even though. The tour takes you right by Berkeley sometimes. Right. And then I would go by and my friends would be out there and they would just heckle me. <laughs> yeah, endlessly, me. yeah. But the great thing is that the, the trolleys, the windows are wide open and there are right. speakers and I'm the one with the microphones. So right. I always had the last say. Yeah. That's,
0: <laughs> that's great, man. That's the best job I've ever heard like someone do. That's so, that's so yeah. excellent. Man. And soon
1: after that, I moved to New York. Right. And had a series of, you know, stupid
0: little jobs. Sure. Um, so. What was your playing, like, at, like, post-college? Were you playing in original bands, or jazz stuff, or, like, wedding bands? Like, what were you you doing?
1: I'm going to use the word Nazi again. I was a jazz Nazi. Jazz Nazi. I was just, I was a jazz fascist. Like, jazz fascist. Are we talking, so,
0: so, jazz fascist, are we talking, like, 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 Philly Joe Jones is, like, was, like, the last period of evolution? Because there's some guys that are, like, that was, like, it. Everything after that is, like, I wasn't
1: so much about the, the drum style. It was more about, um, the feeling of the music. Okay. uh, uh, respect, like the, respecting, basically what I thought was, yeah, was good. Sure. I mean, I think back on it, and I'm I'm pretty embarrassed, but it was mm-hmm. a certain evolution in my musical growth that was, you know, the idea of keeping this thing alive. And, right. And uh, but mostly the feeling. I mean, there was a feeling when I saw Greg Hutchinson and Rodney Whitaker play with mm-hmm. Roy Hogarth. There was a feeling to that. Sure. That you don't even hear on a record. You have to be there in person to right. feel it. Right. And it's the closest I can imagine it must have felt like to see Philly Joe and Paul Chambers play. Right. Jimmy right. Cobb and Paul Chambers, you know. Right. <clears throat> but that was what I wanted to achieve every single time I played, mm-hmm. no matter what. And I would I went to Alan Dawson, I was like, yeah. Man, how do you swing? Yeah. I went to Jamie Haddad. I was like, How do you swing? Yeah. I went to everybody, you know. Alan Dawson was like, What do you mean? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like groove, if it's funk or jazz, yeah, yeah. you know, he said he was like well, groove is the path of least resistance. All right. So now yeah. right in the Radimacue yeah, <laughs> right back to it. Yeah. It was like, you know, if you, it was essentially like no one, it was like, you you either do or you don't. Right. You know, but yeah. that's what I was about. And so that informed everybody I was playing with. And sure. A lot of situations I got into.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned Wally's earlier. So were you like, with John Lampkin he was running the band on Saturday and Friday and Saturday. Was that band like a straight? Were they swinging? Were they playing like straight ahead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen I've seen him play in other situations that were like I feel like I I want to say I've seen him play more like fusion stuff. I mean he's such a monster player. He obviously can mold into any situation. But I've also a couple times seen him play the swing stuff. But <laughs> I think of always well, on a Friday and Saturday as like. Jazz, whatever you want, to, whatever style jazz is, like jazz night is gonna be Friday. Yeah. So it was that like a pretty swinging like yeah. situation. Yeah. 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 Um, and and you said you were also running the jam on Sundays at Wally's.
1: Yeah. So eventually, I think John actually used. I think I took it over from him. Yeah. I was running the yeah the Sunday afternoon one was sort of the the one that no one it was like the ugly stepchild. No one really wanted. <laughs> no one really wanted that one. It was like daytime. Yeah. It was start getting going later on. But I, w- I was psyched. Yeah. I I'd been going down there since I was since I was eighteen. Oh, and okay. Well, cool. I would sit outside and then the door opened, I'd like put my ear. In right. And the door guy started to know me. They'd be like, Man, come on. You yeah. know, I was like, Come on, I'll just drink a coke. Yeah. And I think I did that for like a month straight. And then they finally let me in and yeah. you know, at some point I was able to sit in and cool. Start getting to know everybody. So that's how I ended up Doing on the session, but I've to me that scene it felt like uh, it felt like a, a thread back to the way mm-hmm. jazz used to be played because it's yeah. like, it's an it's it's an oral tradition and it's like you have to learn it by doing it and mm-hmm. it really felt like there was a policing to that mm-hmm. that I thought was part of the whole thing so that's that's what added to my uh, mm-hmm. the jazz police fascist right, character
0: <laughs> yeah. Um Which so I'm now shed by the way. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's interesting because me I mean that's like I mean you go to like these music you go to the music schools everybody's got a perspective and some people really care some people don't care at all. But like uh what made you like I guess shed like shed that persona or like that perspective? Or, like what how did that soften over time or like, what was that transition like for you?
1: Um I think it just, it just, you know, you get, you get older, yeah. wiser. Yeah. I, was, I was just young and hungry and yeah. uh, and impressionable. Yeah. Really impressionable. I didn't know myself yet. Right, sure. So it was a lot easier to, you know, to kind of see. Um, this is kind of deep, especially for young people, because yeah. I feel like there's something about a lot of people who play music, who come into it, they might be the only one in their school that even does it. Like I, At some point, I was the only one that was serious among my... I mean, certainly among my close friends. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was the only one doing it. And like I had to make a decision. Like At some point, sports or music, and I chose music. Mm-hmm. And like These things... Every kid has to go through this kind of thing, especially if your parents aren't musicians and it's not natural. Right. And especially if it seems impossible to make a living playing music. It's like, yeah. how do you do it? So it can create a sense of... Um, I'm not sure how to describe it. But I guess, you know, when you're that young, you're naturally insecure. Yeah. And you're naturally trying to find your way and you're naturally rebellious, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And this just had it all. Yeah. This scene and me fitting into it and what I loved about it just felt like truth, honesty. Right. And there is. There's a lot of truth and a lot of honesty to it. But, uh, I think I, I just kind of became a little bit of a bully. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, yeah, the, by, the byproduct of, of how, you know, of that. But it came from a good yeah. place. It was like trying yeah. to find my way and learn about something different for me.
0: Yeah. And it's, so it's I would add to it that it's so, I would say, like, I remember being that young, being like 18 or like, when I, like you said, like, you're like the best, you might be like the best kid in your school, like the most serious kid about it in your like area. And then you would get into a, you get thrown into a place like Berkeley and like, all of a sudden everybody is that same kind of character and there's all different levels of that and like I don't know I just remember being so like insecure like I mean I remember like Kendrick Scott lived he lived across the hall from me at Berkeley and like mm-hmm. I had never even heard like Foreign and More or like Coltrane Live at Berlin when I started and he was like and I was like watching him play like in the first week and I was just like we don't even play the same instrument. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> this is like such a, you know, the disparity. And like, you know, I mean, thankfully, like he was so cool and like such a nice guy. And like, they were like, you know, but there are also guys that would just like, you know, you start trying to play and like people like vibe you out and you're just like, it just, it, it's so hard and like yeah. sad, you know, yeah. and like really difficult to well, overcome those things.
1: Okay. And in, in the same vein, you know, I think part of the reason why I took to it is because growing up in the Boston area, there's a lot of bullying yeah. sure. <laughs> i mean i made it through you know i i grew up you know getting bullied and like like hold my own you know yeah. and you just get a tough skin and you've, you've you've you know there's like a toughness to the to to a guy up there who grows yeah. up up there you know yeah. just kind of like everyone's always ragging on each other right. there's a feeling of um oh you're you're my you you got your master's degree you're my right. master now it's like right. it's like every you're better than me you think you're better than me right. all that kind of stuff like you know, it's always gets made fun of in the movies about Boston, but there's sure. a truth to all that. So I think I was naturally inclined to take all the lumps that you get when you go to the jam session, and right. to me it was like, well, if I can overcome this, then, you know, I'm I'm gonna be a great musician. Right. So yeah, I remember. I remember, I'll never forget. I sat in one time at Wally's, and it was a, it was like a medium. T- it was something I was really comfortable with, mm-hmm. and everyone turned their heads everyone was surprised everyone gave me dap afterwards everyone yeah. was shaking my hand man alright alright yeah. so I was feeling really good yeah and I came down the next time you know I'm a little a swagger in my walk
0: mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> feeling good about yourself yeah
1: <laughs> like let's do this again let's, yeah. let's do that again alright and Charles Craig the pianist
0: uh-huh.
1: was, he, he looked at me and he, he he was the only one that looked a little sour he was not sour but he was just kind of like alright kid and I got up and he was like, yeah, I know what you think is going to happen. He played, a, I think it was a blues. Anyways, it was a ballad tempo. It was the slowest thing I'd ever heard. It was like ridiculous. Like you wouldn't even yeah. record it. Yeah. Like the slowest song you'd ever heard. He exaggerated that even more. Just right. A, just it a, felt like it was just to me, but it was really just in service of the music. But
0: right.
1: he, it was so slow. Yeah. And man, I was like, all right. I started trying to keep time. Keeping time and making music are two different things. Holding on. I mean, I feel, and then it's that thing that happens. You feel your stomach start to tense up. Yeah. You feel the sweat starts to happen on your your brow a little bit. Your mind starts racing. It's like, why am I so uncomfortable? What can I change? What's going wrong? Like, is it my high hat? Is the seat too high? What is going on? Yeah. You start thinking that stuff and you're totally not in the moment. Yeah, you're sunk. Yeah. You're You're sunk. You're you're sunk. Yeah. You're sunk. And then it becomes, when is the song going to (laughs) end? Yeah. Oh my God. And then he might, you know, let's say the pianist knows this and he's really trying to keep you on the hot seat. So he extends the song a little bit. So then you're like, well, let me do something drastic just to shake me out of it. I'll do this or this, and you know, and he won't even look at you. And at Wally's the drums are literally right next to the piano. Yeah, like the floor tom is at, like, next right to the, yeah. the high keys in the piano. Like, yeah, he, he could have reached out and hit my snare drum if he wanted to. Right. Anyways, that was oh, a man. lesson, and but that kind of stuff informed what was happening with me at that time. So I, I, uh, I felt like it was. You feel you get to feel like, well, this is how I learned. This is how I'm going to teach. But you know, yeah, that's not necessarily the best education for everybody. Right. You know? It worked for me. Yeah. But absolutely, man. I, I saw a guy recently, in the last year, who I hadn't seen in maybe since since Boston. hmm He was like, man, I don't know if you remember, but you really hurt my feelings. Really? <laughs> I was like, man, we're adults. Oh Are man. Are you kidding me? Yeah. But he was like, man, I got to tell you, you really hurt my feelings. Wow. I feel like you you bullied me and. To my credit, it wasn't just yeah. me. It was the, everyone else that was yeah. there with me. Yeah. But he remembered me, and he remembered yeah. that. And I was like, wow.
0: Wow, man. Sometimes <laughs> you hang... It's crazy, man. Those... So apologies no. to, to that guy. Man, that's... uh.
1: I did apologize to him. I sent him a long note. But no, it was, that's nice, man. But, you know, we're adults now. And it's like... Yeah. You realize, like, there's no... There's no yeah. place for that.
0: No. Yeah, my... I think... I never got... I feel like I, everyone was always cool to me. But, like, the thing that I just remember, like, sometimes... I I was an okay straight-ahead drummer in college. But, like, there were so many great players that it was, like... I was not at the... The high-caliber players were, like, Lee Fish and Kendrick Scott and, like, Jordan Pearlson. These guys are, like, great players. They were already great in college. Mm -hmm. They were already, like, playing with... Kendrick was already playing with Terrence Blanchard, like, you know. So, like, sometimes I would get caught... I would get stunned into, like, do some sub-stuff or sub-rehearsal for some of these guys sometimes. And it's just, like... Just the look of, like, on everyone's face of, like, man this guy is, like, not that happening. You know, like, that would be my feeling of, like, everybody's just looking at you, like, man, like, when is Jordan coming back? Or when's Kenneth coming That's just, like, that feeling of, like, I remember, like, specifically, like, playing with, you you know, Warren Wolf? Sure. Yeah, and he was, he's such an amazing musician, such a master, you know, on fives and bass and drums and piano, just the overall concept of music. And, like, he would just put his head, I just remember, like, he would put his, like, like, lawnmower earmuffs on and just be, like, playing. You know? And, like, just, not not looking at anybody. And I was, like, God, and he probably, who knows what he was thinking about. But in my mind, I was just, like, I was, like, oh, he's just, like, hey, dreading this right now. He's, like, not feeling it. And, like, I was just, like, interdoing it to myself. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. I'm bringing more than anything. And I see all those guys today. And, like, some of those guys are, like, my best friends or whatever. And it's, like, totally cool. But but in my mind, oh, my God.
1: Yeah, you learning know? music The arts in general. I mean, music in in particular, though, because you're sort of thrust together in this thing, and it's 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 really interesting. Like everyone has to find their way. Yeah. the the only way to overcome that kind of stuff is to just believe in yourself. And you know, for me, the transition which we can talk about from you know in in to becoming a more rounded musician and learning other kinds of music and whatnot. Yeah. I feel like the best thing that anyone who's young can learn is that there's your dream. And then there's reality and that doesn't mean that you don't go for your dream It doesn't mean that your dream won't be achieved but you can't predict what's going to happen and the going back to Alan Dawson mm-hmm. groove is the path of least resistance right you're gonna meet so much resistance in your pursuit of aiming for something right and it's about how you how you either fight through that mm-hmm. or how you go around it or how you allow hey actually this other path might even be better right all these little decisions can change your, your career, you know, yeah. and that's why you see someone like Quincy Jones. I feel like,
0: yeah, you know,
1: I mean, I don't know him personally. I, I've you know gotten to meet him briefly, and it was mm-hmm. like he, to me, his career. You can see in his career that he just kept evolving. Mm-hmm. You can call it evolving. Other people might say, "Oh, I didn't achieve my dream. Like, right. I never, I never joined the Ray Brown Trio." Right.
0: right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Doesn't yeah. mean that I'm not going to do great things. Great things, you
0: know? exactly, man. Uh, so let's talk about uh, moving to New York City. So, like, when did you actually move to New York?
1: I moved in um, '98.
0: '98, okay. And, and that's, um,
1: that's 1998 for n- the young people. Yeah, <laughs>
0: 1998. That's amazing. So, 1998, New York, I mean, is so different year over year. It's accelerating. And in '98, I mean, where did you first move to? Like, what area of the city did you move to?
1: I moved to Sunset Park. Uh-huh. And I moved because my friend. <clears throat> had a room open up uh-huh. in his apartment I had visited many times and it seemed ideal it was you could play music there mm-hmm. it was big enough and he was one of my favorite musicians he had mm-hmm. been at Oberlin mm-hmm. and uh, so and the rent was going to be the same as my rent in Boston oh, cool. and my fear had always been oh you gotta save money to move to New York as people tell you it's not true right. you gotta just move just, <laughs> just, jump. just jump just jump I yeah. mean I was still going back and doing gigs in, in Boston here and there but, yeah. um, but really but You just gotta make make the move if you want to do
0: it. Yeah, and can you talk just a little bit about like getting established? What it was like for you to get established, and maybe your perception of like what you need to do to get established today as someone who might move here like next year or something? I think it's pretty much
1: the same now. Um, I think the styles of what's happening have changed, but um, in terms of meeting musicians, which is where you're going to make all your connections, um, there's there there are just lots of gigs happening. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, well maybe not tons of paying gigs, but there's lots of jam sessions, there's lots of sessions you can do, there's tons of musicians you can meet, um, lots of opportunities to mm-hmm. make music. Now, making a living, that's a different thing, mm-hmm. um, but certainly meeting people, you just ask around, start asking around, you know, if you've got a couple of friends, they're going to take you out, it's going to just multiply right. exponentially, very, very quickly. I mean, um, you'll, you'll be in New York for years and still be meeting new people. You're like, how did I never meet you? You you came here at the same time as me. Right. And then that's just within perhaps the scene of music that you're most, that you're most known in. Yeah,
0: yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and so were you like playing like wedding gigs or like when did you, did you ever like play in like a traditional like wedding band or dance band or?
1: I never did. I did one gig in a, like, I guess what you call in Boston, a GB band. They call yeah. them, in New York they call them club dates. Yeah. I did one of those. Um, it was actually a bar mitzvah. Okay. And, um, yeah, I I was not really prepared for that kind of gig. Yeah. And I'm, I, it, I wouldn't do it again. Right. <laughs> because it's very unmusical. A lot of it is just this sort of hammering of... It's it's kind of a brutal yeah. situation. Yeah. But on that gig, I met a singer who ultimately joined uh, my own cover band that I ultimately started. But the transition to for me to doing weddings and that kind of thing is Mm -hmm. that what you're asking yeah
0: Yeah. I'd like to hear about that yeah
1: um so I was playing like all of us we do freelance gigs you know right um I did a lot of weddings in Boston more in the jazz cocktail Mm hours and stuff and in New York and a lot of times I was playing it always felt like it was not as cool as it could have been Mm yeah I always had this feeling like this doesn't we don't have to be treated this way right we don't have to wear these stupid tuxes like. Like, look, everyone else looks, they're dressed in a suit that looks good. Why can't we do that? Right. I feel like no one would care. There's a, it just felt like there were a lot of questions that weren't being asked. Right. People were just, it's just, it's just considered brutal out of the gate. You get called and the call is like, yeah, you know, it's not too hard. Or, oh, that'll be an easy gig. Whenever I hear someone say it's going to be an easy gig, that's a red flag for me. It means, what do you mean easy? First of all, (laughs) music is, is just, it's, that's not what music is about. It's not about whether it's hard or easy. It's like, you if, it, if it's easy, that means that it's a really tough job, but right. it's not as bad as <laughs> someone might think. And what yeah. that means is that no one's planning on having fun, which means it's not really music to me. Yeah. It's not really going to be music. It's going to yeah. be some sort of an exercise in pretending to play music. Or, and I was finding situations like that, and eventually I just started to feel like I. I can do this better. I mean, you do it enough and someone's going to ask you, a friend or a family member is going to ask you to run a band. Right. Or someone's going to just get sick and then you got to run their band. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts that way. Mm-hmm. I think everything is, in my career has been like happenstance. You right. Dip your toe in, try something and you, you realize, well, I can do this better than this person, I think. Let me try it.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. the
1: trick after that is to try not to end up doing things that you hate just because you're good at it
0: right yeah yeah man a lot of a lot to unpack (laughs) that's good um yeah so let's talk about the development of of lucy music then so what is lucy music
1: so lucy music is a is the name of a little company that i run which is essentially a collection of my friends bands Mm -hmm. um or the side projects like groups of friends that play in each other's original projects and Mm -hmm. this is the the band that they use for when they play a dance party or something like that, play mm-hmm. covers. Mm-hmm. Um, we gave them each cute little alias names for when they play parties. It mm-hmm. um, all developed pretty organically. I have, a, I have a band that I put together for a friend's wedding, mm-hmm. which I resisted at first, and then he was like, "Ah, oh, come on, it'll be fun, Dude, we'll, You know, I know you love '80s music. I love a bunch of '80s covers. Mm-hmm. All right, so I picked all my favorites, picked all my favorite musicians, mm-hmm. put it together. It was a blast." Yeah. Nora Jones was there. She sang the first dance, it was cool. pretty cool. The caterer loved it, called us for another wedding. Someone else heard about it, called mm-hmm. us for another wedding. Yeah. I just kept telling people, you don't want us. We're not gonna do what I thought a wedding band had to do, which was cheesy stuff and uh, contemporary top 40 that wasn't very good and rented tuxes and mediocre covers and mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. I just kept telling them, we don't do any of that stuff. And like, yeah. Great, we don't want any of that stuff. I was like, what do you mean? All right, great. It just kept going and that's I realized a bunch of my other friends uh, were doing similar things Mm -hmm. Um, but how I ended up becoming somebody who books gigs Mm -hmm. um, was back near when I first moved to New York like a few years later Um, I became a band leader leading bands for um, the Jazz Ambassadors program for the Mm -hmm. State Department yeah and we had to handle I mean they do all the booking and travel and all that kind of stuff but I was we essentially just land in a country and be met by uh people from the embassy who would come mm-hmm. talk to us and i was the point person i was a leader and i'd have to run the band and do the, the show and we did workshops and clinics and um i was meeting people from all these different walks of life like right. really crazy situations where you'd be in some country and here's the top model that's on the billboard outside and then here's the ambassador from wherever right. who's sitting next to you at the table right. And you gotta talk about music, and there's opportunities arising. And so through that, I started realizing that people really love jazz, especially, at that time I was doing a lot of jazz. Mm-hmm. People really love it, but they don't know what to do when they hear a record. Right. But if you do it in person, they freak out. They love it. Yeah, you know? It's like magic. Yeah. yeah. Because it is. Yeah. It really is magic. You're yeah. in this moment, doing this thing together, and no matter how great the record is, you know, right. it's, it's I think it's really lucky if you make one that's good. right? You know? kind of blue is like lucky yeah you know Yeah. those guys they just totally. they went in and did what they were doing every night It just right. happened to catch something that everyone wanted to hear over and over again right um, anyways long story I'm, now my co- the coffee's it's, kicking in I'm just it's good, it's chatting, good. And chatting but uh, uh, long story short I just I just naturally started becoming the guy who who was, was doing guy like, that the, yeah I was yeah. just doing stuff I was just like so I was like, guys, we should do this and we yeah. should do that and everyone was like, yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I had this like, we were doing a lot of like, me and my friends were doing a lot of cocktail party gigs in New York and it was like, well, they, people come up and ask you for the cards. Like, how are they going to remember um, the Wayne Escoffrey Quartet? You know? mm-hmm. Or what if you're out of town? Right. Wayne, I mean, like how about, why don't, why don't we create an umbrella brand name? Right. So I created a company called Jazz Capital Events
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then the crash happened and, uh,
0: like 2008 yeah. That, yeah and that
1: by the way that was not meant to be weddings because I still thought weddings were the worst thing you could ever right. get corporate events I was like let's just get paid we all you know let's yeah. make some money guys And yeah. we're on tour and we come back in town you lost your little gig you know this will help yeah. fill it in sure so that was always my idea was to create a place where we could make some side money mm-hmm. still play what we wanted still do what we wanted yeah and get some of this money that's everywhere awesome. in the city yeah you know? I was just I was Broke, walking yeah. around, looking at these skyscrapers, looking at everyone going to lunch at these fancy places. Like, look at... And they all... I've met a lot of these people yeah. that look like this. <laughs> yeah. I know they appreciate what we do. Yeah. So I, um, I'm getting a little off track here. No, but, that's, um, this is great, man. I, but I,
0: I love the concept of the, 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 all that money. You're walking, you're walking around Broke and you're looking at the city. There's all this money. Like, how do we get well, some And, we,
1: and I know what we do is valuable.
0: Yeah. Because everyone...
1: Tells us. Right. <laughs> and we're getting exported all around the world. I was doing these tours all around the world to, right. to talk about it, you know, which was cool. It was helped me stay in New York, but it still, you know, yeah. wasn't paying all the bills. Yeah. Anyways, I, my, my venture into becoming a business person has essentially been, I think, what a lot of people do, which is essentially being a middleman. Mm-hmm. And being a middleman, I think all it is, is being able to, to take something that is, that is um, valued, but people don't know how to get their hands on it. Right. And music is definitely one of those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well said. Do you have any financial principles that you've held on to that have helped you like get to where you're at to like keep your, you know, head above the water when times are good or bad or like anything you've like held on to? Ooh,
1: that's a tough one, man. Because I think you have to essentially be somewhat delusional about money to become a musician. Right. I mean, I didn't even think I mean I took entrepreneurship at Berkeley and yeah. They were just, you know, the teacher there, he was saying things to me that were true. It made a lot of sense, and I was not ready to hear them, and I was resistant, and I couldn't have used it then anyway. Yeah. All I was thinking about was becoming a good musician, which is what you have to do yeah. to become a good musician. Baseline, yeah. You have to just forget of it. You have to have faith that if I just keep doing this and do what sounds good and learn how to play with others well, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be fine. Right. And it's pretty much true. Yeah. But then I started hearing about how much people were making, even the top people. Yeah. The people that I was looking up to that I wanted to I wanted to get to their level I was like wait that's it
0: Yeah.
1: that's the top Yeah. that's when I really started to go whoa yeah. I want to make more money than that I yeah. want to be really comfortable solely so that I don't have to do gigs I don't want to do mm-hmm. because it crushes my soul to do yeah. a gig that I'm not into Yeah. especially if, especially if it's good music and I'm just not prepared for it and I'm like there's someone else who could do this better yeah let me get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't, I, I need the gigs, I need them, 200 sure. bucks or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or when I first moved town the 25 bucks. Oh, yeah, man. Um, so, man. principles, I don't know that I have any except uh, don't be afraid to make money. Yeah. Don't be afraid to uh, let go. And that's that could be a whole other conversation mm-hmm. because I think I'm the, out of most of my peers, I'm someone who's truly made a jump where I was you know, going from practicing six hours, eight hours a day mm-hmm. to a couple weeks without touching the drums just yeah. to get this company, you know, here and going, there, yeah. like a lot of sacrifices in that department. And mm-hmm. That really hurts. And how do you overcome that? And is it worth it?
0: Right. Yeah. I
1: could talk about that all day.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good, man. That, that's a good answer. Have you ever found on, like, yourself on a gig that were like, you looked around on the stage and you like, you could, you're could, like you know 17 year old self is just freaking out you're just like I can't believe I'm here on stage with like whoever this famous person or like this person I've always wanted to play with at this great venue I've always wanted to play in you know
1: in those situations I tend to shut down really not shut down as a musician but I tend to uh, just kind of like you either your choices are you can either get really nervous which is somewhat uncontrollable sometimes yeah. um, or you can just or you, you sort of like blank out mm. and just kind of like focus on the job at hand right which i think is much healthier much better yeah. <laughs> much better um i've had more dreams yeah of being in that situation and not being able to get the drum set set up or something <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah um but and i've also been i've pr- less on stage with in that situation because usually if you're on stage there's some preparation that goes into right. it and you have some time to prepare and mm-hmm. you're doing a rehearsal or you're checking something out and you're it's not a shock you're not all of a sudden like oh my gosh you're right yeah but i've definitely been in situations where i've looked out in the audience and been like oh my gosh that's like a whole bunch of my musical idols right there right like that's that's a little yeah yeah um
0: you can't let that
1: but it happens enough times and you just
0: yeah that's one thing darren barrett would always say he's like if it's one thing i took from like studying with him and playing with him he he was like don't get shook Yeah, you get when you start to let yourself get it feeds on itself. Like you were saying before, it's like is the drum thrown too high? Is the you know is the you know then it starts to turn in your stomach and then.
1: Well, you know what's funny is that the that's where being a jazz musician is one of the most difficult things because less than another kind of music where there might be um, things a little more scripted. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've done tours where we're doing the same music every single night and there isn't any improvisation. Right. There's something about that where it's almost more like a classical gig. You're just trying to nail it and keep the, the motion and the feeling right. Mm-hmm. But in jazz, there's actually there's so much freedom that it can actually, it, you really have to be centered. Right. To, to do it. Otherwise, everyone can feel it when it's not good. Right. Absolutely. Actually, not everyone can feel it when it's not good. But they can all feel it when it's really good.
0: And that's what <laughs> yeah, you want. Yeah, well said. There you go. <laughs> Um, and the last one last question is do you have any I ask everybody this do you have any like post gig rituals that you hold on to that you partake in or anything that you do that's maybe healthy like super healthy or super not healthy like after a gig Uh, (laughs)
1: um, you know well for the past uh, couple years I've been playing uh, with an artist named Kat Mm Edmondson and first of all it's the quietest gig I've ever played and that's a challenge in itself but Mm -hmm. um, what's amazing is we're in a full suit and tie and everything Sharp mm-hmm. come off the gig and I'm, I'm not, I haven't even broken a sweat wow it's an, it's intense it's, yeah. it's, it's still hard music but it's it's, I've, it's not like the gigs I used to where I was breaking sticks and sweating through my whole. sure shirt. yeah um, that was with this band called the French Kicks so that's rock band. Mm-hmm. so after that gig I'm cool to do anything you know? yeah it's just I don't know now I got no good answer for this I don't drink so good. it's like it, yeah, yeah
0: that's like everybody either like just basically, everybody says they just like either drinks, everybody just drinks or like they just go home and take, if you don't drink, you just take a shower and go to bed. Well, you know, That's back it. in my younger days, it yeah. was
1: go find a drink and get into an adventure Yeah. in whatever town you're in. Right. Do it. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Like right. this is part of the payment, you know, right. those days are over. Okay. Yeah. And well, that was super not healthy, but it was fun.
0: Yeah. Excellent, man. Well, Aaron, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it.
1: No problem. I'm sorry. I just, I just, I now I'm that old guy. I just, really? You want to know about me? I'm um,
0: going to keep,
1: yeah. I'm going to just talk and talk. Oh,
0: this was great. Thank you, man. <laughs> this episode was produced and edited by me, Andrew Jones. The theme song was a collaboration between Matt Pendergast and myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about this show, please email me at amusicianslifepodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Musician's Pod, and I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening, and remember, time with music is time well spent.